0: Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. Today, as we continue our studies, a topical study this summer looking at marriage and sexuality in the Bible, uh, we are looking at God's plan for marriage from Ephesians chapter 5. and We'll be reading and studying together verses 22 through 33. Last week, we began to look at marriage from Genesis chapter 2. Uh, looking at God's purpose for marriage. Why did he give us marriage in the first place? And we found uh, that it was that we might see more of his grace and his gospel, uh, so that we might be fruitful, so that we might fulfill the cultural mandate that he has given, uh, that the waters, as the waters cover the seas, so the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Uh, Today, we're looking more at the specifics of marriage, what it means for A particular husband and a particular wife to be joined in a relationship together. So today, God's plan for marriage from Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. Before we read this passage, please join me as we seek the Lord's blessing in another word of prayer. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we come to your word eager to hear what you have to say to us. We pray that You would give us glad hearts to receive this word. Give us humble hearts uh, to receive it and put it into action. Give us your spirit, O Lord, that we may live out the commands that you have for your people. Father, help us, most of all, to see more of our Savior through this, to see the one who loved his church enough to give himself for her and supplies and nourishes and cherishes his bride, Help us to remember that you are the one who has given us all that we need, and help us to rejoice in him through this word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We hear now God's word as we find it in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning to read in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Thus far, the reading of God's holy an inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it today. Uh, in uh, Kevin DeYoung's really excellent little book on men and women in the church, he he tells about the somewhat predictable controversy surrounding J. Leon Holmes. Uh, J. Leon Holmes was an Arkansas judge. He was appointed to be a federal uh, district court judge in Arkansas in 2004. And typically, you may know that district court appointments pretty much pass by without much ado. Uh, It's the Supreme Court that we really dig in and and vet and and go through all that process, and it gets publicized everywhere. But district courts, you know, it happens all the time. Holmes might have flown under the radar, too, except for the fact that uh, he authored an article together with his wife uh, that appeared in the periodical Arkansas Catholic in 1997. There, uh, in that article, citing these verses that we just read, Holmes and his wife made this startling statement. They said that in a marriage, quote, the wife is to subordinate herself to the husband. They also said that the woman is to place herself under the authority of the man. Well, uh, news of that article got out. Uh, and during the confirmation hearing, it was Senator Dianne Feinstein who led the opposition uh, she asked, how can I or any other American trust that one who truly believes that a woman is subordinate to her spouse can interpret the Constitution fairly, she said. Even three senators from the other side of the political aisle joined in. They said that Holmes' statement proved that he did not have a fundamental commitment to the equality of women in our society. That was a statement. And DeYoung concludes that even though Holmes was eventually conferred, he confirmed, he said that the objections raised then in the early 2000s are no doubt even more widespread today. Uh, there's an understatement for you. If you, uh, in our contemporary society, go so far as to claim that a wife ought to submit herself to her husband, that is not just an objection. That is a complete non-starter. Let me suggest for a moment, imagine an evangelistic conversation. You have the opportunity, a divinely appointed opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone who has never believed, and it seems like things are going well. The conversation is moving in a great direction. You're just about to get to the point of commitment, and then the person that you're sharing with says, wait a minute. Doesn't your Bible say that women have to submit to their husbands? And it's a non-starter. It's a roadblock. It's seen very often as an obstacle rather than an opportunity for sharing the faith. And so it happens that many believers even see Ephesians chapter 5, and it gets filed in our minds under the category of a problem passage. It's one of those scriptures we feel like we have to learn to defend if we want our faith to be taken seriously. One of those passages we're tempted to avoid rather than to celebrate. This should not be. When the Holy Spirit inspired this letter, when he gave these words to the Apostle Paul, he did not do it in hushed tones in case the unbelievers might be listening. It didn't inspire Paul to write down in a pencil in case there's a culture later somewhere down the line that is offended by these things so that we can erase them and change the message. The Holy Spirit did not uh, offer an apology to these words as though submission was God's plan B. The best he could come up with on short notice. No, this is God's plan A. This is his divine design for marriage throughout all centuries and all cultures and all ages. This is God's blueprint for what marriage is meant to look like. He has given marriage between a man and a woman, between a lover and a supporter, between a head and a helper. He has given us marriage in just this way, not to be a smokescreen to our faith not to be an obstacle, but so that we would see the gospel love of Jesus Christ all the more clearly. In order to understand that, I think we need to begin by looking at the gospel context of this passage. That is admittedly not where the verses that we began to read, uh, not where they start. Verse 22 jumps directly into the deep end. This commandment, wives, submit yourself to your husbands. And then verse 25, another commandment, husbands, love your wives. The whole passage is ordered around uh, what Christians are called to do in their marriages, how we must treat one another. And at the end, verse 33 summarizes with a few more commandments. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. It is, on the one hand, a very practical, very behavior-oriented section of Scripture, and that's a good thing. God's Word gives us scriptures that are useful. God in His his scriptures, uh, He equips us for every good work, even the work of marriage. And so sometimes God's Word has to tell us the things that we ought to do. That's a good thing, but that's by far not the most important aspect of this text. And so throughout these commands and behind them, these commands for what married Christians must do is this reminder of what Jesus Christ has already done. We see it most clearly, I think, in the section dealing uh, with husbands, beginning in verse 25. Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then Paul does that very typical thing that you've probably seen uh, and experienced Paul doing before. Uh, That thing where he he seems to get lost in his love for the gospel, he seems to go off uh, on a bit of a sidetrack. He gets caught up uh, in what it means for Christ to love the church when he, uh, we thought he was going to be teaching us about marriage. He says, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, but why? Verse 26, well, so that he might sanctify her, he says. So that he might set her apart from the world and, and take her for himself. So that he might purify his bride with the cleansing power of the proclamation of his gospel. Paul says Christ gave himself for her, verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself glorious and spotless, so that she might be blameless and holy, he says. And you know how it goes, because in high school, in college, you had those teachers that were sidetrackable, those ones, and then there were a few Uh, A few students in the class, I was one of them, and we learned that if we could just ask the right questions about the right things, you could get that teacher off on a tangent that would take most of the class period before they remembered, oh, this is what we're supposed to be learning today. And when we read Paul sometimes, it feels like that's the kind of teacher that he was. He was also pretty sidetrackable. When he sees an opportunity to turn his attention to the grace of God in Christ, he takes it. He's always interrupting himself to explore all the nooks and crannies of what it means for the church to be loved by Jesus Christ. And if you are the kind of student, not like me, but if you're the kind of student that gets bothered by that kind of teaching, you almost want to say, get to the point, Paul. Here I am, and my marriage is in shambles, and you're talking about salvation. I just want to know what I can do to fix this thing give me the take-home, give me, give me something to do in my marriage, Paul, get to the point. But he can't, or at least he won't, because that's not how it works. Paul refuses to tell us anything about marriage without also rooting our marriages in the work of Jesus Christ for sinners. Sinners means that when you read Ephesians chapter 5 and you see this sort of meandering path that goes back and forth between talking about husbands and wives on the one hand and Christ and and the church on the other hand, it's not as though Paul is missing the point. This is the point. The point is that we can't even begin to understand our roles in marriage without also understanding what Jesus has done to bring salvation to his bride. This, I think, is one reason, probably not the only one, is one reason that skeptics and unbelievers have such a problem with a passage like Ephesians chapter 5. That's why they have a problem with the Christian view of marriage. The unbeliever, of course, does not believe in the message of the gospel. The unbeliever does not believe that our fundamental existential need is to be reconciled to the God who has made us for His glory. The unbeliever does not believe the the eternal Son of God became man in order to give his life as a sacrifice for sinners. The unbeliever does not acknowledge that that same Jesus Christ was resurrected bodily on the third day, that now he lives forever to give life in abundance to those who trust in him. The unbeliever does not believe, as Ephesians chapter 1 puts it, that Christ has blessed Christians with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, or that you have been saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own doing. The unbeliever does not believe, as our text says, that Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. The unbeliever, by definition, does not believe the gospel. And it is because they do not believe the gospel that when they turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and they hear this message about marriage and about submission and sacrificial love, that is the reason that they look at that and say, that sounds ridiculous. It sounds backward, doesn't it? It sounds oppressive, maybe. It sounds demeaning. It sounds like it borders somewhere on abusive. Why? Why? Because once you reject the message of the gospel, the only thing that this chapter has to offer you is one more commandment. Without the message of what Jesus Christ has already done, all we see in Ephesians 5 is law. And quite frankly, it might be a law that turns out not to be worth keeping. Can you hear it? Can you imagine how this sounds if you remove the Savior from the picture? If all we have is a command, wives, submit yourselves. Give up primary control over every aspect of your life to the man that you are with. And by the way, you better hope that he's a man worth following, because if not, you're left with nothing. Maybe worse than nothing. Or how about husbands? Husbands, love the wives that you have. Love them enough to sacrifice for them. Sacrifice your ambition, sacrifice your plans, love them enough to count their needs more important than yours, and while you're at it, you better hope that that makes for a happy home. Because if not, you've got nothing else to give, you have no other card to play. Do you hear it? Take away the gospel... And this passage is nothing but commandment. It's two sides of the same law that calls each person in the relationship to give up what looks best for you and to commit to what is best for someone else. Wives, submit, Paul says. Husbands, make your love look like a sacrifice. And if all we found here was just one more law that might not be worth keeping, I wouldn't blame any of you if you decided to run from this passage just as fast as your feet could carry you. But that is not all we find here. There is a gospel context for Christian marriage that cannot be separated from it if we want to understand it correctly. There is the lifeblood of the Christian gospel running through these verses. Jesus Christ is the Savior, he says. Jesus Christ is the one who nourishes And cherishes his body, the church. That means that if you are a Christian, married or not, God gives you everything you need through him. If you are a Christian, he gives you his word and his spirit. He provides you with love and forgiveness. He showers you with abundance and restoration and an eternal inheritance. If you are a Christian, Jesus Christ has committed himself to you perfectly for your good. He gives you all his covenantal love and faithfulness. He gives you himself. And he gives you himself even on those days that you wake up and wonder if you made the wrong decision and married the wrong person. Quite frankly, he gives you himself on the days that the person you married wonders the same thing about you. Let me put it this way. If we have believed the message of the gospel, we are free to approach the question of marriage from a foundation of fullness. A foundation of fullness. Sadly, there are far too many Christians who approach marriage from an assumed emptiness. There are too many Christians who long for marriage to be the answer to what they feel they are lacking. Sometimes this is the way that singles approach the question of marriage. Some of you know, some of you still remember what it's like to sense that because you're not married that you're missing out on something. You're missing something good, something that God probably should have given you by now if he really cares about you. And even if you know that's not true, it's still hard to shake that thought that if only you were married, your life would be complete. You'd no longer be empty. There are plenty of married people that approach marriage the same way. So there are at least as many Christian wives and husbands telling themselves that if only they had a better marriage, if only they had a more attentive husband, if only they had a more devoted wife, if only they could find a way out of the marriage that they're in and into a marriage that they wish they could be in, well, then they would be complete. They'd have all that they need you know in your own daily struggles that most of the time our perception of emptiness isn't really that black and white it comes in waves and shades little struggles each day so most of the time it shows up in that knee jerk reaction we all have when we we'll, we feel like we're giving more in the relationship than the other person is giving to us our struggle with emptiness shows up in our sulkiness it shows up in our sense of entitlement It shows every time we say to ourselves, why should I have to do X for her when she never even offers to do Y for me? And we feel like there's an imbalance. And in those situations, you can hear it, don't you? If things were different, I would have enough. If my marriage was better, I would be complete. If I could do what was best for me, then I wouldn't feel so empty. And if you can hear that, the voice that you're hearing is the voice of unbelief. It means that the real problem that we have with the commands in Ephesians chapter 5 is the way that we tend to forget how full the gospel already makes us. We hear the command to submission. We hear the command to sacrifice. And it sounds something like stinginess on God's part, like that's all the more he can think up for you. And we forget that Christ has already given us all that we need because he, as our Savior, has given us himself. Dear friends, this is why Paul has woven the gospel into these verses. He's done it so that we would remember that all our Christian lives, all of our marriage, all of our singleness, all of our work and our worship, all of our submission and our sacrifice— All of it is meant to flow out of the fullness of knowing that Jesus Christ has loved us and has made us His own perfectly and permanently. A love that does not depend on how we feel or how we behave. A love that cannot be taken away forever. And once you have embraced that, then the Spirit also allows you to grow in obedience from the heart for the commands that God has for your marriage. And God has commands for your marriage, if you're married. He has commands for both of you, actually, and His commands for each person in a marriage are different. So maybe there's the first truth we need to acknowledge about God's plan. The plan is that the Lord has called us to gendered relationship roles that are complementary. They are not interchangeable. You could examine a handful of other parallel texts in the New Testament. You could turn to Colossians chapter 3. You could turn to the third chapter of 1 Peter. You could turn to Titus chapter 2. The dynamic is always the same. Not an interchangeable set of relationship roles, but a complementary set of relationship roles. The Lord calls wives to willing submission, and he calls husbands to loving sacrifice. I'm going to take the rest of the time that we have and look at each of those commands in turn. So first, for the wives, or or for the future wives among us, the Lord calls you to willingly submit to the leadership of your husband. That's important. Godly submission is not something that is exacted. It is not something that is forced. It is something that is given. Notice that in verse 33, it does not say, and let each of you husbands see that your wife respects you. No. It deals with the wife directly. Wives, see that you respect your husbands. It's a willing gift, willing sacrifice. Verse 22 is the simplest form of the command. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The word is hupotasso, submit. It means to order under. Outside of the New Testament, it's often used in in military contexts to speak of something like a chain of command. Within the New Testament, it's used to refer to all sorts of things, like Jesus submitting himself to his earthly parents. Luke chapter 2, and he went back with them and was submissive to them. Hupotasso. It speaks also of Christians in the church submitting to the elders that are over them. It is undeniably a word that speaks of authority and of order. In this case, Paul says that the subjection that wives offer to their husband is a gift that they give to the Lord. And why not? I realize the way that that might sound to some people, to to some outsiders, maybe the way that it sounds to you. And some people might say that that's... That's bordering on spiritual abuse, because where does this chauvinistic pastor get off telling uh, these women in the congregation that if they will be spiritually right with the Lord, they have to be submissive to their husbands? Sounds like he's pulling the wrong lever to arrange the wrong things in the household that is not his. And they would say, Pastor, you can't do that, but why not? Why should your submission to your husbands not be a gift to the God who called you? That's the same way every other aspect of your Christian life works, isn't it? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So then, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If you can eat and drink to the glory of God, can't you submit to your husband to the glory of God? Can't you make it a gift given to the Lord and given by proxy to Him? So if the Lord calls you to give your whole life to Him, why not your role in the marriage of course, it's not that easy, is it? Especially not when you consider that this is not merely calling for some outward show of compliance. Not only submission when your husband is looking. So the language of submission in, in verses 22 and 24, it's added there that language of respect in verse 33. Let each one of you love his wife uh, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Actually, the word behind that is fear. The word is phobos in the Greek. Uh, for obvious reasons, all of our English translations remove the connotations of fear that might be associated with terror because that has no place in a godly marriage. And instead, they all use versions of something like respect or honor or reverence in verse 33. But still, the idea takes its, its cues from that wonderful biblical image of the fear of the Lord. That loving reverence that should be in the heart of every true believer. And together, this language of submission and respect, uh, together it shows us that the issue at hand is really an inward submission. It is an attitude of the heart that flows outward into the home. So Jill Briscoe says that submission is not sitting on the outside while you're standing on the inside. Neither is it grumbling to yourself under your breath where he can't hear you, where your husband uh, asks you to do one more thing that you hadn't planned to do that day and he already seems oblivious to all the things that you've already done. Submission is not hoping that all of your husband's bad decisions turn out just as badly as you planned that they would so that you can smugly say to him, I told you so. Submission is not a tool by which you can manipulate your husband by visibly submitting in the least convenient ways possible. See what I do for you. Instead, submission is a free act of the will that has been renewed by the Spirit of Christ. Submission is a conscious decision to support and to follow the man to whom God has joined you in the covenant of marriage. Submission in a Christian marriage means growing in the discipline of not second-guessing your husband all the time. It means giving words of encouragement when you can see him doing those hard things that nobody but you would ever notice. Submission means finding ways to voice your opinions, doing it honestly, doing it openly. And then once you have voiced your opinions, praying to the Lord to give wisdom to your husband, even if his decisions don't go in the direction that you might have wanted them to. Submission is approaching your husband with the conviction. That even if you are smarter than he is, even if you are more spiritually astute, even if you attend more Bible studies and you take better notes during the sermon, it's approaching your husband with the conviction that the Lord is able to use this man to lead you in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And if your husband is not yet a believer, 1 Peter chapter 3 says that submission means making sure that he sees your faith even more than he hears about it. Submission in the scriptures is a recognition that by virtue of God's calling on your husband, he is the head of your marriage relationship. That's what verse 23 says. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Notice that language. It doesn't say that your husband should be the head. It doesn't say that you ought to treat him that way once he has proven himself. It says that he is already because God has declared it so. Let's recognize the limits here. It does not mean that your husband is your savior. Paul does move at one point from earthly marriages to the marriage between Christ and his bride. So it doesn't mean that your husband is your savior. It does not mean that you receive forgiveness of sins in proportion to your submission to your husband. You are not responsible by your submission to make your husband love you more or to be more attentive. That's not what this means. But it does mean that your husband is the head. He's not your Lord, but he is the head of your household. Not because he chose that role, but because the Lord has declared it. And because the Lord has called husbands the head, he also calls wives to submit. Now, I recognize, I hope as well as you do, that there are difficulties here. I realize that Ephesians chapter 5 envisions a, a kind of Christian ideal household one in which both husband and wife are eager to follow the Lord. And it seems to envision a marriage uh, in which grace is lived out and the home is happy, not to mention safe. I realize there are difficulties here. There are questions of sin and distrust that are not addressed by these verses. And if you are wrestling with those deeper, more personal issues in your own marriage, I encourage you to find someone to speak with to receive godly counsel talk to an elder, find an elder's wife, talk to me. Godly submission is never meant to lead you into overt sin. Godly submission is never meant to leave you in a place where you are being actively sinned against. So I realize that there are difficulties, but we also need to realize that in order to deal with those difficulties, we first have to establish the principle. And the principle that God has given us it's willing submission. Wives, submit to your own husbands. That brings us to the command to the husbands. So while wives are called to submission, husbands are called to sacrificial love. There's a funny thing, the way uh, that cultures always change, but the word of God never does. So in our day, when we open Ephesians chapter 5, almost all of the controversy resides in verses 22, 23, and 24. In Paul's day, it was the opposite. All of the controversy dealt with the husband. That's because in the Roman world, the role of the husband, the role of the father, was typically handled in terms of rights. So every ethical teacher, every philosopher had their own ideas and they would go around with their teachings and they would speak about what the husband was entitled to rather than what the husband was expected to give. So for example, the husband in uh, the ancient world had the right to be respected in the home. He had the right to be obeyed completely, often under pain of punishment or violence. In many corners of the Roman culture, he had the right to have as many affairs outside the marriage as he liked, so long as any children conceived out there were not included in the inheritance with the children of the family. In the ancient world, outside of Judaism, men of means had the right to do pretty much anything they wanted. But when Paul addresses Christian husbands here, he does not speak to them of their rights. He does not tell them what they are entitled to do or to receive. He tells them what they must give. So verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We ought to notice a few important things about that command. First, we need to notice that this is a love that should be demonstrable, should be visible. Not just love and, and a feeling in, in the pit of your gut somewhere. Not just the warm fuzzies. Right? This is love set in action. The model here is the love that led Jesus to give himself for sinners. So when Christians talk about the love of God, we talk about the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When Christians talk about the love of Christ, we talk about John chapter 13. Or we read there, before the washing of the feet, that Jesus, having loved those who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And it's getting us ready for Calvary. That's the kind of love that Jesus had for the church. Love that was sacrificial. Love that you could point to and say, there it is. Do you see it? Do you see the sacrifice? Love that could be demonstrated. But secondly, it's love that is demonstrated in sacrifice for the good of his beloved. This is what Paul says. Christ loved the church so much that he gave himself up for her. When Christ sacrificed himself for his bride, he had a goal in mind. The goal was to make the church into everything that his heavenly father had promised the church would become. He had a vision in a sense Not faith the way you have it, because he is the divine, eternal Son of God. He knows all things from beginning to end, but he saw what she would become. And his love was given to move her into that position, into that being that she was becoming. His goal was to build her up, to nourish her spirit. His goal was to give her life rather than condemnation. His goal was to cultivate fruitfulness rather than resentment. Again, there are obvious limits here as to what earthly husbands can do for their wives. You husbands cannot sanctify your wives. You, by your love for her, are not responsible to make her more submissive to you. You cannot make them holy or blameless before the Lord, but you can love them so that their growth becomes your primary concern. This is what it means to love your wife as Christ loved the church. You can love them so that your sacrifice of time, your gift of emotional energy, lets your wife know that she is prized and included in your life. Did you know, husbands, are you aware that it is possible for you, you are allowed to break that new and overly restrictive diet that you just started last week? When your wife forgets which one you're doing this time, then she goes to the trouble of making you your favorite meal anyway. Did you know that you can give that up? Did you know that you can readjust your goalposts and your desires for your own life to make sure that you and your wife cross the finish line together rather than separately dragging her behind you? Yes, it means that loving your wife for her good will sometimes mean sacrificing your personal time, your hobby time. It will sometimes mean sacrificing your time at home with her to give yourself to the job and the occupation that will provide for her future. Sometimes love will look like that. Other times it will look like sacrificing your drive for that next promotion so that you can be more available. It's hard to say what it will look like in your marriage. Whatever form it takes, it will be love that looks like sacrifice for her rather than yourself. Verses 28 and 29 say, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Again, Jesus is our model here. It tells us that he both nourishes and cherishes his bride for her good. I think this this calls us away from the relational whiplash that so many men are prone to fall into. This is the pattern of sin that goes all the way back to the garden. God calls men, husbands, the head of their marriage. He calls them to exercise leadership in the home for the direction of the family, but men tend to find uh, balance in these regards difficult. We struggle with this. So some husbands vacillate between overbearing leadership and outright abdication. Sometimes we make leadership feel like micromanagement. We put our foot down. We demand that things must be done the way that we are comfortable having them done. Other times, we make leadership seem like a disappearing act. We heap everything on the shoulders of our wives, and we say, I don't have time for this. You deal with it. I can't think about this right now. You have to figure this out. But that's not how the Savior loves his church. He nourishes his church. He cherishes his church to build her up. He makes sure that she knows that she is protected, provided for. He doesn't leave her wondering if he's going to show up or not. This time there's a crisis. So cherishing your wife means love that shows up. Love that shows up consistently. Love that does not grow weary with the leadership that God has placed on you as the head. Loving your wife sacrificially for her good will mean that you had better be listening to her opinions and taking them into account when there is something that you have to decide together for the family. But on the other side of that decision, it also means bearing the burden of responsibility when the decisions that you make together don't go the way that you hope they might. Most of all, I think, it means taking an active role in the spiritual leadership Of your marriage and your family. Husbands, do not make your wife wonder if you are going to lead family worship. Do not make your wife come to you and ask you to pray for her when you can see that she's already dealing with something difficult. Don't make your wife grow her faith in an isolation chamber. Instead, love your wife well enough to take her to her Savior. Pray with her when you're together. Pray for her when you're apart. Prioritize it. Make it a part of your ministry to her in your marriage. Ask your wife how it is with her soul. Seek to know where she's growing in the Lord, the doubts that she's wrestling with. Love her well enough to speak to her of God's goodness when she is anxious about life. Love her well enough to speak encouragement to her when she falls into sin or when somebody sins against her. Love her well enough to seek her forgiveness when the person who sins against her is you. Love your wives well enough to remember that her greatest need actually is not you, it's Jesus. And be the one who points her in that direction. You might not believe it, but I I think even with all that has been said, we are only beginning to scratch the surface of what it should look like for wives to submit and husbands to love. In each marriage, Lord willing, you will have a lifetime to work these things out together in prayer, conversation, You have opportunity to pray through these things and grow in obedience but wherever you are in your relationship this morning I hope that you see that this is God's good plan for marriage he's the one who's given us this pattern he's given it to us so that we would know more of the gospel in a sense he's given us marriage as a parable we tend to think about it the other way around that we understand marriage because we understand the gospel no 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 He's told us that we ought to understand the gospel by seeing our marriages. That's why these commands are so important. Our marriages become a parable to one another. Our marriages become a parable to the world. Because there's something that's secondary in this passage. That's you and me. And There's something that's primary that we need to learn. So Paul says there is a husband who loves his wife and a wife who submits to her husband. Paul says there is a head who sacrifices perfectly. He gives up his rights to build and to nurture and to care and to protect. He lays down his life in order to make his bride pure and spotless. And he tells us that the wife who is joined to that loving husband rejoices to submit to him. She loves him and respects him from a foundation of fullness. This is a great mystery, says Paul. But he tells us that it refers to Christ and the church. This is why God has given us his plan, so that we would learn more about his love for us. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we confess, everyone in this room, that we fail at many points, married or unmarried, even in our thoughts about marriage if we're still single. And we fail in many points to live up to these commandments that you give us. And so, O Lord, we thank you for the gospel in this word. We thank you that our obedience is not the standard of your love. But rather, your love gives us that obedience that we so lack. Thank you, Father, for filling us with every good gift in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his sacrifice on behalf of his bride. Thank you for making us lovely to yourself, even when we in our sin are but rather unlovable. We pray for the marriages represented at Redeemer Church. We pray that you would build them up, that they would grow together, that husbands would sacrificially love their wives, that wives would willingly submit to their husbands, that the beauty of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ would be seen through our body. Oh, help us, O oh Lord, to recognize your goodness and to proclaim it through our marriages. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.